you're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Buck took the day off, but don't worry, we've still got you covered. This is the best of the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, friends. Honored and privileged to have you here with me. There are only a few names that you can think of from American history that we are all supposed to, that we all have some degree of reverence for, right? That, that we're supposed to believe, no matter who you are, where you come from in this country, you're supposed to think, well, that, that's a great man. There are only a few names where that is the case. And you can start with the Founding Fathers, the people on Mount Rushmore, and you would add... Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And you beat some people would add, I, I don't know, you, you know, there there are a handful of these names out there that when someone says who's who's a great American and we can all agree on it, there are only a handful of names that come to mind. And for a lot of people, they were at least under the impression until recently that Abraham Lincoln was one of them, that Abraham Lincoln would be free from cancel culture, that this would be a guy that we could all agree did something pretty extraordinary and wasn't perfect by any means. But at the end of the day, he was on the right side and was the commander in chief of a military uh, that ended slavery in the United States. And that's a pretty remarkable thing. So we tend to give him a lot of plaudits for this. And as we know, he was assassinated afterwards for it. And But Abraham Lincoln would be one of those names where you'd say, well, the greatness of what he accomplished with the ending of slavery, the greatness that he accomplished with all of this, uh, wouldn't that then make him at least somewhat immune to these efforts to destroy historical figures based upon some perception of what they should be that's constantly changing and very new to our current moment? But then I bring you the modern American lib. The left, the Democrats, and their wokeness, their psychological disorder known as wokeness. And we have yet another example of just how far that will go. You have Abraham Lincoln as a name that a San Francisco high school board or some kind of a committee that's looking to rename schools. And it's in San Fran and and they want to get rid of Abraham Lincoln's name from a school because he was. I believe the quote is insufficiently committed to uh, black lives mattering or or to the, the matter of, of black lives. Now, for the man that ordered hundreds of thousands of Americans uh, to their deaths or to extreme pain, mutilation, uh, being wounded on the battlefield to end slavery, to say that he was insufficiently committed to to uh, black lives mattering would seem to be the height of insanity. And and it is. But there's a reason behind all of this. So we need to start examining what's really going on in this country, because we're at this point where we're told that the Democrats are calling for unity, that Joe Biden and his would be cabinet, they're saying unify. And as we know, unify really means bend the knee to me. Do what I say. And we'll call it unity. But while they're calling for this, we also see time and again, they don't particularly have any sense of unity to America as we know it. There's something very different going on. And it usually is incremental. 
that this happens. They, they start with something where we say, OK, fine, you know, and this is why when there was that whole dust up about con, about Confederate generals, I was saying, look, I'm I'm not somebody that is going to uh, carry any, any water for the keep up some of these Confederate generals statue side of this brief. It's, you know, it's a community decision, a community standard. But understand this. They're coming for the founding fathers next. In fact, Donald Trump said at the time, well, what about Jefferson? What about Washington? Are they going to are they going to tear down those statues? There is here in New York City. I've seen this on many nights because I go for walks sometimes right near what is known as Columbus Circle, named for Christopher Columbus. It's a very large, very prominent statue of Christopher Columbus. There is an army of NYPD officers that are deployed in a huge circle with barricades and and they've got uh, they've got all kinds of additional ESU and vehicles deployed. It's it's crazy. And I've asked the cops, I've said, is this really because you guys are worried that one night the radical left is just going to show up and destroy this statue of Christopher Columbus? And they said, yes, absolutely. That is why we are deployed here. And this is in one of the ritzier parts of new york city it's outside the time warner center so even de blasio realizes this would get some attention but they say that columbus was a a a genocidal essentially a genocidal maniac who was engaged in the exploitation of humanity and so on and so forth they don't care that we celebrate columbus for discovering the new world for uh, europe and the rest of the world They, they don't care about that that's not that's not enough And as we see with Abraham Lincoln, it's not enough that he was the commander in chief and the president who led us into war, a war that did end slavery in this country and that he called for the freeing of the slaves during that war. Um, What's really happening here? There is an essay that I came across. I've never I've never even heard of this publication before, and I haven't heard of this author before, but I thought this essay was extraordinary and i read constantly uh the commentary all over the web and i'm always looking to see uh who who's worth reading because most of it 90 percent of what's published on the internet even by so-called conservatives or whatever is really it's repetitive it's an echo chamber it's just not worth spending much time on at least for me uh, as someone who's reading this stuff all day long this was really good uh this uh, it was at unheard.com And the author is Matthew Crawford, who is a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture at the University of Virginia. The title is How Race Politics Liberated the Elites. And this is absolutely top notch analysis. Um, It's it's phenomenal, really. It's a really, really strong piece. And here, let me give you some of what we're talking about here. Um. And, and why this, I think, defines our current moment for the Democrat Party and for the left. The idea of a common good, this is a quote from the piece, has given way to a partition of citizens along the lines of a moral hierarchy. Instead of feeling bound up in a shared fate with one's country one, a countrymen, one develops an alternate, uh, alternate solidarity that is placeless. The relatability across national borders that the genteel folk feel in one another's company, the gracious ease and trust, the shared points of reference in high prestige opinion has something to do with their uniformly high standing in the moral hierarchy that divides citizen 
uh, from citizen within their own nations. The decision making class has discovered that it enjoys the mandate of heaven. And with this comes certain permissions, certain exemptions from democratic scruple. This is spot on. Uh, This is excellent. He's talking about how in our country now, because America, I mean, the short version of this is that because America, according to the left now, is inherently racist and misogynist. It gives the elites, it gives this ruling class a mentality that they owe no allegiance to that entity, to America, at least to the idea, to the ideals of traditional America. They have something better. They're working for something better. And so there's no need for them to debase themselves by pretending that our flag waving jingoistic, we love the founding fathers in the Constitution nonsense should in any way slow their role. They get to do whatever they want. They know better. You see, they're above it. But this is this is a version of something I've said to you many times before. There are those of us who take tremendous pride in being American And then there are those of us who take pride in believing we are better than America. And those are called liberals. Those are leftists. That's what they are. That's how they think. The reason that they're constantly encouraging the most toxic identity politics, racial politics, gender politics. The reason they do this is because they've adopted a philosophy that America is actually bad. That there is this moral rot at the center of this country. They've identified it. It's almost like they stumbled upon some secret knowledge and now they're spreading this great wisdom to all the rest of us. And anyone who rejects this, anyone who sees this for the intense hypocrisy that it is, is shouted down. Part of the patriarchy, part of the racist, misogynistic system. And also it gives the people at the top a total pass for not working for what we think of as the common good, not working for what we consider to be universal American values. They can live their lives. This is why they can fly on private jets to climate change conferences where they're going to talk about how you should be you know, walking three miles or biking 10 miles to work every day. Can't put all that CO2 in the air. Well, they're above you, you see. They're working for this better world, this better place. You are part of this traditional America that's just so racist and misogynistic and and so awful. And so this this goes way beyond even uh, way beyond the the usual liberal hypocrisy. This is a kind of religion of elites excellence and they are devotees of it. And they also get to think of themselves as great heroes for for standing up for the oppressed. I mean, how many of you does this sound like your smug neighbor who has a big Biden-Harris sign in their yard, right? Don't they always think that they're somehow so morally enlightened, even if their own personal choices are really crappy and even if they don't really care about other people or help them very much, but they stand for equality. In fact, these days they stand for equity, the preferred term, which is just equality of outcome, which is Marxism. Back into this piece for a second, quote, in the revolt of the elites, Christopher Lash spelled out in greater detail the role that claims of racial and sexual oppression play in securing release from allegiance to the nation, not just for those 
who identify as its victims, but for those with the moral sensitivity to see victimization where it may not be apparent and who make this capacity a touchstone of their identity. It becomes a token of moral elevation by which we recognize one another and distinguish ourselves from the broader run of citizens. Both Lash and Hannah Arendt argue that black Americans serve a crucial function for the white bourgeoisie. As the emblem and proof of America's illegitimacy, they anchor a politics of repudiation in which the idea of a common good has little purchase. End quote. Saying all those elitist, white, college-educated, liberal Democrats out there, the libs, who are always talking how, about, about racism. They don't do anything to solve racism. They don't spend any time in black-majority neighborhoods. They don't really know what's going on within the black community, but they love pointing out the racism all around them all the time, even where there's no actual racism sometimes. They do this because by demeaning traditional America, American values, by saying that this place is racist and wrong and evil, they're not bound by the generally held conceptions of what makes a good American citizen these these days because they know better. They're above it. They're elevated beyond it. Doesn't this all sound exactly like the ethos, the modern philosophy of a Democrat? Don't you all have friends that are just like this? They've never actually been in a high crime uh, majority minority neighborhood for more than a couple of hours or maybe driving through it. But they want to give you lectures about BLM. That's right. They want to lecture you about BLM from their million-dollar house in an all-white suburb. These are the kind of libs we're talking about here. The ones who are frauds. The ones who are fakes. How do they get away with this in their own minds? This is how. They don't take pride in being Americans. They think they are better than America. They know better than America. And they want to transform this place in this image. And that's what we are facing now going forward. Liberty, truth, and great hair. You're listening to the best of the Buck Sexton Show. How Race Politics Liberated the Elites by Matthew Crawford. Unheard.com is the site. And I just I thought this was a, a fascinating analysis. And I like to give people credit when they do something like this that really advances the conversation. Other people just like to rip people off and pretend it's theirs. No, I want I want Matthew Crawford to get the high five he deserves for this. And he, he goes on. And, and I think we have to remember there is a a another way to prove this analysis or this line of thinking, the legitimacy, the, the integrity of this philosophical approach, because it's not only in America that this actually has now spread. It's gone beyond American borders. So you'd think that the the left's unique revulsion at the longstanding history of slavery in this country and then uh, Jim Crow and segregation. And, you know, they say that they're they're confronting that even today. That's what the left will tell you. But yet there are BLM protests in London, in Paris, in Germany. And the author points this out. This illegitimacy transcends any particular historical facts about slavery 
and segregation. It indeed transcends America, as one can surmise, by the ease with with which American grievance politics have been exported throughout the Western world. In this, we sometimes see the use of historical American references that have been weirdly transposed, as when a house once lived in by Rosa Parks was relocated from Detroit to Berlin, the financial seat of the European Union. Under the empire of Christendom, the market for material relics from the Passion of the Christ was similarly global. They left the Holy Land and ended up in various seats of earthly power. Most recently, the transatlantic festival of George Floyd attests to the fact that it isn't simply America that stands accused. The social order is corrupt then. The labor movement once had an alternative order to offer in its stead, drawing on the socialist tradition. It was one that included African-Americans, not as African-Americans, but as workers. And this movement was fairly successful. What happened then? The prominence of the term repressed in the 1960s is is significant and marks a shift into a new terrain of uh, psychologized politics. The object of attack for the new left was no longer laissez-faire capitalism, but society. The Freudian superego, more or less, with its insistence on standards of behavior that are binding on all. Society is to be taken as inherently oppressive and discredited in the name of liberation. Effectively, America is so oppressive, racist, evil, gender discriminatory. It's such a bad place that the left can completely rewrite the rules of what we should be trying to achieve in this country. And on a personal level, they feel no particular allegiance to traditional America, and they feel like their actions are always justified because they're working for this greater idealized future. Isn't this every lib you know? Isn't this every smug Biden voter you've come across in the last year or so? I'm sure there are some exceptions, but I'm betting it's most of them. Just to finish this up, quote, if the ideal of a demoralized public sphere was a signature aspiration of liberal secularism, it seems we have entered a post-secular age. Populism happened because it became widely noticed that we have transitioned from a liberal society to something that more closely resembles a a corrupt theocracy, end quote. Yeah, this is the religion of the elites we are talking about. Buck took the day off, but don't worry. We've still got you covered. This is the best of the Buck Sexton Show. Big story about Eric Swalwell, member of Congress and on the Intelligence Committee, no less, in the House, who was targeted by a Chinese spy. People are now paying more attention than they have in quite some time to Chinese espionage and influence operations in the United States. I wanted you all to get a real sense of how far and wide those operations really are. And so we're bringing on our friend Gordon Chang to tell you about it right now. He's the author of a book you can get right now, ebook, The Great U.S. China Tech War. And you can follow him on Twitter, Gordon G. Chang. If you want to know what's going on with China, you should. Gordon, thanks so much. Thank you, Buck. So, Gordon, take us just from from the broad strokes here, because I, I've spent some time on the Swalwell case this week, and we can dig into that in a moment. But what do people need to know about Chinese Communist Party influence and espionage operations as a as a systematic threat that's been going on for years in the U.S.? Yeah. Well, China's operations against the U.S. have been going on for years and indeed decades, and they are at all levels of society. We're talking not just the White House, not just the House and Senate, but also down to municipalities. You know, the most interesting detail about the Swalwell investigation 
is that they first came into contact with him, not when he was on the House Intel Committee, which of course would be of value to them, but when he was a council member in Dublin City, California. They started early. They helped to promote his campaigns. They obviously were trying to infiltrate him, to influence him. And indeed, in a sense, it may have worked because even after the FBI warned him that there was a possible Ministry of State security agent um, in his inner circle, um, Swalwell didn't talk about China's threat to the U.S. It was all Russia, Russia, Russia. And I think that was certainly helping China because that's one of their narratives, that it's not them. So um, we've got to be concerned. And, and remember, Swalwell was just one individual. They're doing this across the country. No other nation has posed such a big intelligence threat to the United States ever. Now, tell us about some of the ways that they influence specifically on on the corporate side. And, and just if you can a- add a little context here for the ways that they can exert influence in a in a in a fashion that that moves the needle for them. But that may not be as obvious. I mean, we know that they're trying to get classified information. We know about the cyber side of things. Uh, we hear more about that than we do this other, these other aspects. But uh, on influence operations, how are how is the Chinese Communist Party? I mean, the NBA, for example, right? We know the NBA doesn't want to go against the CCP. Where else are there pressure points in in what we're seeing day to day? Well, I'll take something from the headlines, and this is the other side of the aisle. The Republican governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp. Now, he uh, always touts um, the uh, investment opportunities uh, for China in the Peach State. Um, he was actually um, proud to be pictured next to Houston's consul general from China um, before, of course, the consul- before the consulate was closed by the State Department in July. So really what they try to do is they go after all of the states. They go after many of the cities, um, dangling out sister city projects, also, um, you know, trade and investment, all the rest of it. So this is multidimensional. And it's sometimes it looks harmless, as it does in the case of Georgia. But uh, it's part of one malicious campaign, whether we're talking Brian Kemp, Eric Swalwell, or whomever. We're talking to Gordon Chang, author of The Great U.S.-China Tech War. And you can follow him on Twitter, Gordon G, as in Gordon, Gordon G. Chang. Uh, Gordon, tell me about the tech aspects of this and what we should be prepared for going forward. I know you've written a book on this recently. Yeah. What I um, tried to do was to look at China's tech challenge to the U.S. Because if we go back a decade ago, China was not considered to be a uh, competitor to the U.S. in tech. But now in certain areas, in certain crucial areas, China is actually ahead of the U.S. So, for instance, in quantum communications, they're not far behind in quantum computing, which is even more important. Um, they can even be ahead if we take their claims at face value of their new supercomputer. Um, all sorts of things like artificial intelligence, big data. Um, they are even with us, if not ahead. Um, this is a multidimensional challenge. China's trying to collect the DNA of Americans. And the question is, what's up with that? Um, they've been doing that by hacking, you know, Anthem, the second largest health insurer. That uh, hack was disclosed in early 2015. We know that they're buying up companies with DNA profiles of Americans. They offer subsidized um, DNA analysis. So if you go to an ancestry company, 
chances are that China has gotten your DNA. Um, so this is really a, a challenge to us, really across the board. What would China want with DNA, Gordon? Two things, Buck. Um, first of all, um, biotechnology is one of the 10 areas that's designated in their Made in China 2025 plan. That's a 10-year program to dominate uh, technology. But there's something even um, sinister about this. And, and as China's collecting American and the DNA of others, um, it is also restricting, essentially prohibiting, the transfer of Chinese DNA to foreigners. Um, they, they, they talk about how they want to be cooperative with the world, but they don't want us to see genetic material of, of Chinese. And many people suspect, uh, including some in the U.S. government, that China is actually using DNA um, genetic information to, to design diseases um, targeting certain ethnic or racial groups. Now, um, this gets to the point where we've got to be obviously critically concerned because we saw what the coronavirus did. Um, and imagine if it were engineered. I mean, some people say it was engineered, but whether it was engineered or not, it has crippled American society and it's now killed about 290,000 Americans. What Gordon, uh, what Gordon is allowing China, is it all just straight up lying about the numbers and suppression? Because we, we hear all the COVID numbers coming out of Europe. We hear about them in South America. And obviously we're in a very bad spot right now with COVID in the U.S. We don't hear about huge outbreaks in China right now, or at least it's certainly not making to the news cycle. What's going on? Uh, great question, because the answer is, we don't know. Um, we do know that on January 26, the Communist Party formed its leading group on the coronavirus, which is essentially China's task force. And of the nine-person roster, there was only one health official. The rest of them were propaganda workers, as they're called in China, and Communist Party um, hacks. So you can see that really their emphasis was controlling the narrative. And since that time, end of January, we haven't heard very much about what's going on in China because they are suppressing information. You know, my sense is that they have fewer cases than we do, far fewer, um, because they use draconian methods. But we really don't know. We hear about outbreaks across the country periodically, um, including big cities like Shanghai. And then the news is just disappeared. So I think that essentially they do have a problem. They haven't mastered it. Um, but nonetheless, it's not as serious as ours. Gordon, what is it that the Chinese Communist Party wants to be the foreign policy going forward? I mean, Trump clearly confronted them in a way that they were not used to. Uh, if we do go into a Biden administration here, what is it that the Chinese Communist Party wants to be our viewpoint? You know, essentially, what are they trying to achieve with the influence operations put aside and the espionage is clear, right? They want to steal our most valuable intellectual property and technology. And, and they've been doing this for many, many years and gotten away with. Well, we can't really it's incalculable, right? We can't actually even know the full scope and damage. But in terms of what they want our perception to be and what they'd want a Biden administration foreign policy to look like, what's the, What does that look like? Well, they want whoever is inaugurated on January 20 um, to express subservience to China. Because we had seen this year, Buck, China try to overthrow the government of the United States. Um, and we know that Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler, ha has the view that there is only one sovereign state in the world, 
and only one sovereign ruler. And that, of course, is China and Xi Jinping himself. So these are, are designs, you know, you know, a lot of people say, oh, China just wants to replace the U.S. at the top of the international system. That's wrong. China wants to overthrow that international system and replace it with this notion of worldwide Chinese rule. And we have seen that they're willing to go to any lengths in order to accomplish that, including inciting violence on American streets, which is what they did this year, which is more than just subversion. That's an act of war against the United States. So what we can see is that China is trying to change our form of government so that we are subservient to China and that we're no longer a sovereign republic. I know many people think that that is an extreme statement, but nonetheless, that is consistent with what we have seen China do. And the more benign interpretations of their goals are not consistent with the facts. Jordan, uh, Gordon, I'm, I'm sure that, that it got uh, uh, people's attention when you mentioned violence on, on U.S. streets uh, in, instigated by China. T- tell us about that. Yes, Radio Free Asia has a report. You know, we, we've heard, of course, the State Department closed the Houston consulate in July, China's consulate. And the State Department said it was a hub of espionage. Well, that is uh, fits all five of the then Chinese consulates and indeed the embassy itself. Um, Radio Free Asia reports that an intelligence unit of the People's Liberation Army based themselves in the Houston consulate. And there they were using big data and artificial intelligence to identify Americans likely to participate in Antifa and Black Lives Matter protests. And then the Chinese military sent those Americans videos via TikTok on how to riot. So that is an act of war. Also, you know, we have seen um, the uh, bureau chief for Europe of China Daily, which is an official Communist Party publication, actually on Twitter, encourage Americans to incited Americans to commit violence. So this is um, this is across the board China policy right now. Um, and that is uh, the most malign uh, that we can think of. Gordon Chang, everybody, check out the great U.S. China tech war and follow him on Twitter. Gordon G. Chang. Gordon, always appreciate it. Thanks for your expertise. Thank you, Buck. Bucks off spreading freedom coast to coast. This is the best of the Buck Sexton show. I also don't think we should get too far ahead of ourselves on dealing with police reform in that because they've already labeled us as being defund the police. Anything we put forward in terms of the organizational structure to change policing, which I promise you will occur, promise you. Just think to yourself and give me advice whether we should do that before January 5th, because that's how they beat the living hell out of us across the country, saying that we're talking about defunding the police. We're not. We're talking about holding them accountable. Biden didn't get the memo from the left. I know left wing activists and there are Bernie supporting folks out there. People tell you, no, when they say defund the police, you know what they mean? Defund the police. No, they're serious about it. See, see, the Democrats keep keep hoping they can convince everyone. Oh, no, no, no. That's not what we when we say that thing. It's not what we mean. We don't we say defund the police. We mean it's, you know, accountability. No, no, that is not. That is not, in fact, what the Democrat activist base wants. They 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 want no more of this. They want defunding of police. There you go. 
Biden, though, is telling you what's obvious. And of course, our media won't ever pick up on this because they don't want to upset their uh, a portion of their viewers who are left wing lunatics. Uh, this was bad for Democrats in these House races. This really hurt. It's a good thing that Joe Biden had enough political consultants around him to tell him, hey, the numbers on this are not good. Don't don't go down this AOC, Ilhan Omar, defund the police crazy path. Don't do that because then you won't be able to fool enough Americans into thinking that you're like moderate, good old Uncle Joe. You know, that was the big that was the big problem. But there are going to be a lot of fights about policing uh, in the next four years. That's for sure. The Democrats are convinced that they've gotten they've created these these beachheads. They have these footholds uh, in and they change the language around all this. They, they talk about how, you know, police violence is this great threat to to uh, black and brown communities. And this is what they'll always say all the time. I mean, here here's uh, Karen Bass, who was at one point being talked about uh, as a possible VP for Biden. Here she is telling everybody what her view of policing is. Play 19. My understanding from the proposal, it is that it's a proposal about racial equity. And I think considering the historical moment that we're in post George Floyd, where people finally in the United States understand that the issue of policing is a question of systemic racism. We understand because of COVID, the underlying health conditions. And so we have real issues in this country. And what we saw over the last few months is that maybe we can address some of these issues. I think it makes absolute sense to do that at the highest level. Why is it an issue of of systemic racism exactly? I I really would like to have more of this. I'd like to know what what is the systemic racism in law enforcement? I'm not even getting into does it exist or not. I I don't I I think the answer is no. But nonetheless, let's just get past that for right now. What is it? What does it mean? If we're going to talk about disparate impact, which is this doctrine of when some groups are affected by things more than others, inherently there must be a racial animus or racial inequality involved in that. Well, I mean, as I've said to you, that's not that's not necessarily true, because then you'd have to address the the Asian supremacist U.S. system where we have Asian-Americans out earning White households in this country, and they have been, I think, for about the last 15 or 20 years. And they've also had more economic gains under the Trump administration than any other group. So it's kind of a strange system of white supremacy when it doesn't actually make sure that white people are advanced at the expense of of other people in this country. Right. So you have to start with with the facts, what we know. And you can also look at, as I point out, gender inequality. uh, Sorry, I should say gender disparate impact. Um, violent crimes are 90 percent plus committed by men. It is not anti-male that there are more violent criminals who are prosecuted who are men. That's just that's just the, we have laws. They're applicable. And that's how it shakes out. So I just need I need to know where is this systemic racism in law enforcement? Explain. They say this and we're all supposed to know. But what is systemically racist in our 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 cops are are mostly racist. Is that what it means? I I just want answers, but they're not going to give us answers, are they? They're going to give us lecture. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Buck took the day off, but don't worry. We've still got you covered. This is the best of the Buck Sexton Show. 
Is there a doctor in the White House? Not if you need an MD. This was written by this guy, Joseph Epstein. And the subheading, this is an editorial in the Wall Street Journal. Jill Biden should think about dropping the honorific, which feels fraudulent, even comic. Um, Let me just be very clear. It is fraudulent and comic. It's absurd. Now, when I say fraudulent, I mean the notion that we should have to call this person who got a Ph.D. at 55 because she was apparently bored and you know wanted to get more street cred or something. Got a Ph.D. at 55 in some kind of, um, uh, you know, d- educational field. And we're all supposed to refer to his doctor. Now, let me be very clear. This is a custom thing. This is a cultural thing. There's no legal issue here, right? Call whatever you want. So I, I don't really understand what they think the big deal is here. And, and I, I want to be very clear uh, that when I look at this, I see that there are people making a big deal of this. Now, I said back in August, Dr. Jill Biden shouldn't be called doctor. This isn't a part- partisan statement. It's about reality. That was back in, in August. Uh, so they, they wrote this piece, the Wall Street Journal, a few months after I, I was already coming out there saying this, because I think it's very obvious. The whole thing is absurd. But you see, they hate. You're not allowed to mock. You're not allowed to mock people in power when they're Democrats. You can't do that. You're not allowed to poke fun at them. They shut that down because it takes away from the power and the perception of power that they're trying to build for them. So, you know, I mean, Jill Jill Biden is not a doctor. And here's what this guy, this guy writes, Madam First Lady, Mrs. Biden, Jill Kiddo. Now that people got mad about the kiddo thing, a bit of advice on may uh, what may seem like a small, but I think is not an important matter. Any chance you might drop the doctor before your name? Dr. Jill Biden sounds and feels fraudulent, not to say a touch comic. Your degree is, I believe, an E, an Ed D or a doctor of education earned at the University of Delaware through a dissertation with the unpromising title student retention at the community college level meeting students needs. A wise man once said that no one should call himself doctor unless he has delivered a child. Think about it, Dr. Jill, and forthwith drop the doc. I taught at Northwestern University for 30 years without a doctorate or any advanced degree. I have only a B.A. in absentia from the University of Chicago in absentia because I took my final examination on a pool table at headquarters company Ford Hood, Texas, while serving in the peacetime army in the late 1950s. I do have an honorary doctorate, though I have yet to report to the president of the school that awarded it. I was fired the year after I received it. Not, I hope, for allowing my honorary doctorate. Um, that's right. So, friends, this is this is pretty straightforward. And I, and I remember some of you wrote any disagree with me on this. That's fine. Uh, I think it's weird. And, and if you if we, we can argue about this, there's certainly argument to be had on both sides. I think it's weird to insist because she clearly does. Because there are tons of people out there without doctorates. I'm sorry, with doctorates who don't want to be called a doctor. Uh, there are lots and lots and lots of them. Um, I, I've always thought this was a little strange. I, I never liked it. I had a we call them headmasters at my grammar school, my primary school. Uh, 
so that's that's what we had to call our principal, a headmaster. And uh, we had to call him doctor. And he, was, he wasn't a doctor. You know, he had some kind of a doctorate in the humanities or whatever. And I know that there's some uh, there's some longstanding tradition here of, of people that are getting a, a P, you know, the Ph.D. came before the M.D. or whatever. I don't care. We've we've evolved in our conversation about this. A doctor is a person who is a doctor. Right. And, and I think that that's in it's it's delivered as an honorific. It's delivered as a term of respect. I do not have any respect for Jill Biden's Ph.D. in community college retention. I give zero you know what's about that. And so I'm not going to walk around and be told that I have to I have to say this better. You know, this would be, if, if I insisted that Democrats call me Buck the radio genius Sexton, they would have a right to say, no, nah, we're not actually going to do that. We're not actually going to refer to him as the radio genius. And you say, well, but why not? You know, why not just be polite and call him what he likes to be called? No, they, they won't do that. Um, so I, 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 you know, I had a grandfather who had an honorary doctorate from Notre Dame. No one, we never called him doctor. He wasn't a doctor. So I, I think that this is, um, a, this is just one of these things that shouldn't have been such a big deal. But the libs... And the machinery of Biden worship that's all kicking into gear. It's amazing. Oh, this is sexist, they say. It's not sexist. Oh, what? They think that if we were supposed to call him Dr. Joe Biden because of his Ph.D. in education and in community college retention or whatever, that uh, th- that we wouldn't make fun of him for that. That's absurd. I mean, th- their point is absurd. It's not it's not real. I would, of course, make fun of Joe Biden for that. I'd make fun of anyone for that. And I think we have a right to do that. But you, you'll, you'll notice there's a particular sensitivity around Biden and his wife and, and the first family and all this stuff because they don't want people to start to realize how, how silly this whole thing is. That Joe Biden is a third tier mediocrity in every sense. And they just figured that this is a guy we could make president they didn't spend enough time thinking about, should we make him president? They just figured, nope, we can we can fool enough people with the media and with social media allied together in a pandemic year. We could we could get this guy to be president and they're all going to try to pretend like this is really impressive. And he's some great guy. Joe Biden's a clown. And, and, and it's a little it is it's pretentious that her wife that his wife rather goes around demanding to be called Dr. Dr. Jill Biden. I'm sorry, it, it is pretentious. Because clearly she demands it because we know about it, right? This isn't like it just is. It's not. It's one thing in the classroom on campus. I'm talking about in like general in in life in general. You know, I think Dick Cheney's wife has a uh, has a doctorate. No one calls her Dr. Cheney. They call her Mrs. Cheney. There's tons of examples. The Wall Street Journal, to its credit, uh, fired back on this one because social media over the weekend. Oh, my gosh. How? How dare you not refer to her as Dr. Jill Biden? I just want to know, has anyone who ever wrote a dissertation for a Ph.D. program at the University of Delaware? I'm just going to ask this question. Do you think they've ever not gotten it? Do you think the University of Delaware has ever been like, yeah, you're you're in our Ph.D. program and you finished a doctorate. But, you know, it just wasn't really uh, good. So we're not going to give you your Ph.D. I'm just guessing. I don't know. I, I, I have to. I wonder if the state is even available. I'm guessing the answer, though, is that, you know, you show up, you write the thing, you get the doctorate. 
So what exactly is impressive about this? In, in what way am I supposed to care about? No, of course not. Do, do you think that uh, do you think that if, if the roles were reversed, if this was a Republican's wife, the Democrats would be leaping to her defense? No. In fact, there was no talk about the sexism of, of attacking Melania all the time. There was no talk about the xenophobia of attacking her accent, making fun of her. She's a woman who speaks five. She's a, a highly successful international model who speaks five languages. But they would they love making jokes about her, mocking her. You think they made you think they made jokes about this? Uh, would they make jokes about this if it was a Republican? No, they would if it was a Republican, not if it's a Democrat. So, uh, oh, there's a little bit more here. I want to read more from this guy's piece. The Ph.D. may have once held prestige, but that has been diminished by the erosion of seriousness and the relaxation of standards in university education generally, at any rate outside the sciences. Getting a doctorate was then an arduous proceeding. One had to pass examinations in two foreign languages, one of them Greek or Latin, defend one's thesis, and take an oral examination on general knowledge in one's field. At Columbia University of an earlier day, a secretary sat outside the room where these examinations were administered, a pitcher of water and a glass on her desk. The water and glass were there for the candidates who fainted. A far cry, this is, from the few doctoral examinations I sat in on during my teaching days, where candidates and teachers addressed one another by first name, and the general atmosphere more resembled the coffee clatch. Dr. Jill, I note, you, I note you acquired your ED as recently as 15 years ago, or at age 55, long after the terror had departed. The prestige of honorary doctorates has declined even further. Such degrees were once given exclusively to scholars, statements, uh, statesmen, artists, and scientists. Then rich men entered the list, usually in the hope they would donate money to the schools that had granted them their honorary degrees. My friends, my late friend Saul Linowitz, then chairman of Xerox, told me he had 63 honorary doctorates. Famous television journalists who passed themselves off as intelligent followed. Entertainers who didn't bother feigning intelligence were next. At Northwestern, recent honorary degree recipients and commencement speakers have included Stephen Colbert and Seth Meyers. I sent a complaining email to the school's president about the low quality of such men of men such sorry of such men as academic honorands with the result that the following year the commencement speaker and honoran was Billie Jean King who with the graduating members of the school's women's tennis team hit tennis balls out to the audience of graduating students and parents who had paid $70,000 a year for their university education or perhaps I should say for their credential Political correctness has put paid to has put paid to any true honor an honorary doctorate may once have possessed. If you're ever looking for a similar a simile to denote rarity, try rarer than a contemporary university honorary degree list not containing an African American woman. Then there are all those honorary degrees bestowed on Bill Cosby, Charlie Rose, and others, owing to their proven or alleged sexual predations. Have, to be, have, have had to be rescinded. Between the honorary degrees given to billionaires, the falsely intelligent entertainers, and the politically correct, just about all honor has been drained from honorary doctorates. As your ed, ed-D or E-D-D, or I don't know how you even say this, educational doctorate, Madame First Lady, hard-earned though, hard though it may have been, 
Please consider stowing it, at least in public, at least for now. Forget the small thrill of being Dr. Jill and settle for the larger thrill of living for the next four years in the best public housing the world has as First Lady Jill Biden. Uh, yeah. Completely agree with this piece, which may not surprise any of you. I think it's completely correct. I think he's spot on. I think Jill Biden is, uh, you know, I, I think that she's a little highfalutin here. And I, I agree. And I think we're allowed to make fun of this. I'm sorry. I am not simply not going to bend the knee on this one because they say so. No interest. No interest whatsoever. So that's what I would say. Um, that's where I am on this one. Not calling her Dr. Jill. I'm going to call her Jill Biden. The first lady, you can call her the first lady. That's fine. Or Jill Biden. That's her name. Uh, Joe Biden can hem and haw about this as much as he wants. But really the more, it's just get ready for a lot of the of the usual tactics you've seen in the past. They're going to call this person. Um, they're going to call this person, whoever it is, in the role that is pointing out what's so obvious to all of us. Sexist. Get ready for everything is going to be sexist and racist again. That's that's the future we're now heading toward in a Democrat Biden administration. Whenever they don't like something, it's sexist. It's racist. They're not going to be arguing on the merits. They're not going to allow for differences of opinion on things that whenever they can get away with it, which is going to be a lot. They're going to raise this as an issue. And they're going to be telling people that this is uh, the way it has to be. And uh, I'm sorry, I, I refuse. I refuse. We got to come up with something. They already used hashtag resist. We got to come up with a hashtag, you know, go blank off libs, something like that. Liberty, truth and great hair. You're listening to the best of the Buck Sexton show. Interesting story today at a time when I know the attorney general has come in for a lot of criticism from from Trump supporters. Interesting story. Not getting a whole lot of attention here, but a little bit. Special counsel Durham is expanding his team, examining the origins of the uh, Russia collusion probe. Let me tell you what could end up happening here, friends. Uh, Well, first, first, I'll give you the update on the story. Fox News has learned that Durham, the U.S. attorney for Connecticut, who Barr appointed in October as special counsel, is adding prosecutors to his team. Uh, It's unclear who they are, but Fox News has reported that Jeff Jensen, Jensen, the U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Missouri, staffed by the Justice Department in February to review the case of former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, was helping with Durham's investigation. So this is is interesting that, uh, that Durham would be expanding his team at this phase. Now he's a special counsel. Makes it a lot harder, makes it a lot harder for anyone to um, just shut this down in a Biden administration. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it makes it more complicated, makes it more politically costly. And here's what I see happening. If they shut it down, we've already established because they said this under Trump. If they shut down, they, they told us that if Trump shut down the special collusion, I'm sorry, special counsel probe into Russia collusion, if they shut that down, Uh, They would impeach him just for shutting it down. We might be able to take the House back in two years. And depending on what this Durham probe finds, wouldn't it be fair play? Wouldn't it be 
justice, dare I say, if Durham gets the goods on Biden and and members of the uh, members of the Obama administration, I mean, who knows what he's really going to find here. Right. But but people from the Obama administration who could be back in the Biden administration and Biden were to shut down the Durham probe or even try to. Maybe it's time for a little Democrat impeachment process. Uh, maybe maybe we'll see how they like it. You know, th- this could happen. I know it's a ways out. Um, but if we do have a full accounting of Russia collusion, what we'll see is the Democrats are a bunch of corrupt, deep state liars and they're a disgrace. And that the Obama administration that Joe Biden was a part of uh, at, at a very high level was also a complete and utter disgrace. So don't don't give up entirely on this. I said Durham wasn't going to get it done before the election. I didn't realize that there was going to be a special counsel appointed after the election or that he would be appointed as a special counsel. And this could this could change things quite a bit. This this could be very, uh, very relevant going forward, because, friends, the Russia collusion stuff was was an, was atrocious. And we know enough now to know that everything we've said about how bad they were and how awful and egregious their actions were. Uh, we, we were telling the truth. We were correct. And they they were lying about this stuff. So Durham being able to find out more here and get to the point where he's able to hold people accountable, I think that could really make a big difference. Um, down the line, not right now, but down the line. We're, this is a long fight, friends. Don't don't feel dejected. Don't feel like, you know, all is lost right now. Because I understand there's a tough week with the electoral electoral college uh, today. And this is not an easy time, but we still have a lot of fights ahead. And the Democrats are going to have their hands full. And I hope this Durham probe makes things a whole lot more challenging for them. That's for sure. Buck took the day off, but don't worry, we've still got you covered. This is the best of the Buck Sexton Show. They can ban me, they can throttle me, they can shadow ban, all the things that they're doing. Demonetize, you know, they they can scold me with these emails. There's no human being that could win any of these arguments with me. So now it's all it's all from anonymous online accounts from these mega social media companies. I mean, this is like a Kafkaesque nightmare. You're banned because you said something not true. Um, I, I shared an opinion and and it's actually rooted in fact. But who wants to debate me? No, no, sorry. The fact checkers said you're wrong. Oh, oh, the fact checkers. Well, I'm sure people that spend their time doing fact checks on social media are really smart and understand the complexities of American politics, as well as microbiology and covid policy. I'm sure they're a bunch of geniuses. You know what this is, friends? The left was losing ground when social media was never a truly open playing field, but when there was an active censorship. And so what they've done is they've bullied their buddies, their peers, Jack Dorsey and Zuckerberg and the rest, and they've bullied them into adopting these official stances that privilege, advance, and support the left-wing narrative of events. This, we talk about how if we lose, and we'll talk about the Georgia Senate seats coming up here in a little bit too, but if we lose the Senate, they're going to add D.C., Puerto Rico, pack the Supreme Court, get obviously the filibuster getting rid of it goes first. 
if we don't get control of the ability to communicate freely online, we're we're done in the long term. Conservatism is over. If they can tell you what you can think and what you can say and how you can share information because we can't compete, you can say, oh, Buck, well, we can all start writing to each other with quill pens and use snail mail or something. We won't be able to compete. Their propaganda machine will become overwhelming again. Why do you think they're so desperate to do this? It's pathetic, but it's very effective. It's very effective. Uh, this is this is concerning. It's upsetting. Uh, we got to fight, friends. We got to fight. We got to fight for these election results to be clear, to be real. We have to see where there was fraud. We have to find it. We have to put it out there. And they're going to tell you that fact checkers say this isn't true. Of course. And they're going to tell you, do what you're told. Wear a mask. Shut up, peasant. Sorry if you lose your business. Sorry if you have a mental breakdown. Mental health metrics in this country are, are in in the 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 toilet. I mean, it's going terribly for people. Kids taken out of school. I just want to know when I was advocating for schools to be open in August, as I was and as the President Trump was when I was advocating for schools to open. I wonder, I haven't even been able to go back and look yet how much fact checking and throttling of my usage of these supposedly free and fair platforms online occurred. Do you think that I, do I get a, a an email from Twitter saying, hey, Fauci's actually a weak willed Democrat jackass and you were right about schools. Sorry about that. No, no, I do not. Do I do I get anybody saying, oh, wow, great call when I said that New York City was going to lock down again, that all these cities were going to lock down again and that the stuff we were doing over the summer when cases were low was just theater. No. I, I do not get an apology for that. No, no one tells me, sorry, you were right. Wow. What has Fauci been right about? I just what, what has Fauci said that he go? Oh, wow, that was good. He saw that one coming. Of course, Biden's keeping him on the classic bureaucrat status move. Have somebody who's a total clown, but they, they have the right politics and you keep them around. You keep them around and have them hide behind their credentials. You know, Fauci's not some world class brain surgeon. OK, he's a guy who's like, yeah, we got, you know, the metrics and the numbers. And, you know, I've been a doctor in public health for a long time. Yeah. What 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 great public health scourge did he help us defeat? Ask yourself that question. Where, where's his rec- Where's his track record of success? Or was he just hiding in the flabby folds of bureaucracy for the last 40 years? The flu season might be bad this year. Be careful. Wash your hands. Thanks, Dr. Fauci. Amazing. It's amazing, right? You would hope that we could at least be honest about this, but we can't. Okay, I've got more questions. I can say them here. Thankfully, I don't get shut down on radio, so I can tell you the truth on the radio. I try to tell you the truth online, those of you who follow me, but getting getting shut down. Yeah, and what else am I going to do? But yeah, by the way, for those of you who are going to tell me, I'm already, I'm posting every, I'm on Parlor all the time. I'm posting there. Of, of course. I'm, but I, uh, this is why I've been saying we need these things. And we need people to back them. And we need big money to go into them. You know, Republican billionaires, I put out my, my clarion call to you again. You want to help save the country? Stop funding another think tank that does nothing and fund a social media platform so that it can actually get the user base necessary. And if it's Parler, that's great. I, I love Parler. I'm using it every day. 
And I appreciate what the people who are spearheading that are doing. I'm, I'm all about it. But I'm, we need more. I want conservative movie studios. I want conservative news organizations that don't have to worry and shut down the moment that there's a boycott from some of these left-wing activists who the game they play, it doesn't even have to be a boycott. They just have to make people afraid there'll be a boycott. And those of you who are saying, oh, but Buck, let's, you know, we, we got to dig more into the Sidney Powell thing or whatever. I'm sitting here saying, look, I want to do all of that. If they control the information flow, it doesn't matter. This is the fight that is that is hanging above all these other political fights we're having. If they can shut this down, if they can censor you, they can stop people like me from telling you the truth about things. What, what, what arguments do you think we're going to win? We're in a very divided country. There are a lot of Democrats. It doesn't matter how bad. It doesn't matter what happens. We could set an all new COVID record next week and the week after and the week after. And they'll say, oh, well, you know, you're not locking down enough. And if the cases go down in the next two weeks, guess what they'll say? See, lockdowns are great. They work really well. And then what happens? You stop. And then what? Ha- right. I mean, this is not allowed. To, not allowed to even think about it. Not allowed to have a real discussion about it. People are suffering because of this. People are suffering because of bad policy, because of capricious and arbitrary decision making by government officials who are going outside the normal legislative process that checks and balances the accountability for what's happening. That's been wiped away. And you have people like like this woman um, who is a restaurant owner, a restaurant owner in California who put out a video, went viral. And I want to just narrate a little bit, then you'll hear her voice. But she goes outside of her restaurant. She spent $80,000, a lot of money for a small business, for a restaurant. I mean, I'm, you know, spent $80,000 creating a really functional, cozy, substantial outdoor dining area in California. And after doing that, and she obeyed them, she bent the knee. And by the way, I don't say that disparagingly, but, you know, she said, okay, government, I'll do what you say here. I'm trying to be a good citizen, you know, and she's expecting a little pat on the head from the government says, all right, we're, we're, we're going to we're taking $80,000 out of your pocket. But once you've done that, we'll let you operate and sell your food to customers. And but it has to be outside. And then they turn around, and they say, oh, sorry, too many cases, too many cases. So you're not allowed to open your restaurant anymore. You're, you're not allowed to do this. And. She walks outside and her outdoor dining. And this is why it's, it's so I mean, you can't you know, you can't see this if you listen to this on a podcast or radio. But her outdoor dining area is right next to another outdoor dining area, which is set up exclusively for the use of a movie production, which is considerably larger, more chairs, more tables, everything movie production. It's sort of catering tables because. Hollywood needs to be able to do its business. And if you're the mayor, if you're Garcetti in Los Angeles, you got to keep Hollywood happy. So her business goes up in smoke. She's out $80,000. She may go bankrupt. She has to fire all of her employees. Remember, there's no PPP anymore. There's no money coming. There's nothing. Because Nancy Pelosi wanted to make a political point. These Democrats are vicious, vicious. It's going to get worse, too, if they actually manage to seize power with Biden here. But here she is, in her own words, describing what she sees outside of her restaurant. Uh, this woman, um, Marsden, play it. 
So this is my place, the Pineapple Hill Grill and Saloon. If you go to my page, you can see all the work I did for outdoor dining, for tables being seven feet apart. And I come in today because I'm organizing a protest and I came in to get stuff for that. And I walk into my parking lot and obviously Mayor Garcetti has approved this, has approved this being set up for, this being set up for, for a movie company. I'm losing everything. Everything I own is being taken away from me. And they set up a movie company right next to my outdoor patio, which is right over here. And people wonder why I'm protesting and why I have had enough. <laughs> They have not given us money and they have shut us down. We cannot survive. My staff cannot survive. Look at this. Tell me that this is dangerous. But right next to me is a slap in my face. It is. It's a slap in her face. And these morons in our media, and they're disgusting, who don't give more voice to women and, and men like this, who have done everything they're supposed to do, and then just based on the arbitrary whim of government power, they're ruined. Why should she accept that? Based on what? Let me tell you this. Do you think anyone from the government is going to come to help her? Does anyone feel sorry for her when her business goes under, when she can't make the rent payments for this business, when her life savings are drained? What do they think happens? No, it, it, the, the movie industry producers, the people that are connected, that that Garcetti and others like him, other Democrats who are particularly odious when it comes to this all across the country, uh, the ones who are connected, they're fine. They'll be fine. Does anyone feel sorry for this woman in, in three months or six months when the pandemic recedes, as it will, and she's bankrupt? No, it's sorry. Start all over again. Your livelihood, your future was the cost of doing business. Sorry, that's the way that it had to be. Because Dr. Fauci says so. Oh, no, not the movie producers. They're important. Sorry. Too bad for you. Bucks off spreading freedom coast to coast. This is the best of the Buck Sexton show. Does anyone even want to try to answer this question? Why is outdoor dining banned in california i, I want to know show me the study show me where outdoor dining is a major trans transmission risk and keep in mind there are activities that are allowed still there are plenty of things you can still do in california i mean i shouldn't say plenty there are a bunch of things you can still do in california that are far riskier than outdoor dining like go into a home depot or a lowe's go, go into a costco that's totally fine retail is open at limited capacity, but retail is open. Huh. Where do you think you're safer? Being in a place where they limit the number of people indoors, but there are still people indoors, or being out in open air? Do they think do you think the virus is going to fly at you with, with open airflow? It, it it's like a heat seeking missile, it's gonna come at you from twenty feet away outdoors? I, I'm just I'm wondering, does anyone want to try to answer this? No, they they have no it's just be quiet, do what you're told. And I've had enough of be quiet, do what you're told. I, I think this is wrong. I think this needs to stop. 
And I'm not the only one, obviously. It's why there's these, these protests happening. It's why people are speaking out against this. Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful. I got to say, I've always I, I like Kevin O'Leary. I interviewed him and met him. Good dude. Here he is asking the obvious questions. Play nine. How is it possible when I've spent sixty, eighty thousand dollars on the back of the restaurant and the front of the restaurant to provide the seats and the heaters and complied with the city ordinance and was just about to reopen? No tents. This is not tented. This is outside with air flowing. I'm shut down. And right across the street is a big box retailer with food services, vending machines and open service courts inside the store, providing food inside of a big box, walls around it. And you could argue to me that they have HEPA filters. I know with certainty they don't. So you're telling me the viral load in the outside of my restaurant is higher than the viral load inside of the big box, which is enclosed? That's ridiculous. And there's no science claim on this. You, you, people are making accommodative science statements. How can outside be less safe then inside, you heard Gottlieb himself on your own air just moments ago talking about eating in restaurants outside with a mask on. So now I as a shareholder have to go bankrupt and all the employees I have have to be laid off for the third time. This is totally unfair. This is just Los Angeles. Kevin, and by the way, it's not just right. L.A. How come I can be open in Miami in the same chain? I would love to see Fauci. Trying to explain that one. Now, I know he's not making the decision. It's Los Angeles. Why can't he tell them not to do this? He'll weigh in on things whenever he feels like it. Do this, do that. Open schools. Don't open schools. Wear a mask. Wash your hands. Don't breathe too much. He's, this guy's got lots of opinions about what the public should be doing all the time. Why isn't he telling? But, but didn't have an opinion about how schools should be open, even though all the data always, always not only supported that, proved that schools were effectively zero risk to children and not not only zero risk to children, but that children don't transmit this very easily at all to adults, if at all. That's what we actually have seen in schools. Fauci wouldn't speak up on that. Why doesn't want doesn't want the Democrats and the teachers unions not to like him. Oh, but he's nonpartisan. If you think Fauci's nonpartisan, uh, honestly, you know, you should, somebody should go watch MSNBC because they're just not smart enough to handle reality. Does anyone have an answer to what? Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary's talking about there? No, they do not. They, they don't even pretend to have an answer. They have, they have no idea, right? They just say, well, that's what the people in charge are saying. Really? Really? Yeah. This is where we are. Not, not even offered up any answers. I wonder if Kevin O'Leary will get, uh, if he puts some of this stuff out there, if he'll get shadow banned on social media. By the way, the social media companies are doing great, aren't they, during this? Amazon's doing great. Washington Post doing great. All these a lot of these companies, they're not laying off people. They're not worried. Who's voiceless in all of this? The small business owner, the independent American, the worker, the person who's still driving his truck or, the, you know, the woman who's still at the grocery store, at the pharmacy. They're still doing their job. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Buck took the day off, but don't worry, we've still got you covered. This is the best of the Buck Sexton Show. What are we really seeing when it comes to the results of these lockdowns and what has the data told us 
so far about so many of these expert predictions when it comes to COVID-19 and how we're supposed to handle it. We're joined now by Phil Kirpin. He's a syndicated columnist and also the president of American Commitment. Phil, thanks for making the time. Great to be with you, Buck. Let's talk about schools first. What does the data tell us about school lockdowns at this stage? Or, or, or I should just say school closures. It's not even really lockdowns. Closing schools and doing only virtual learning. Uh, probably the single biggest policy mistake of the entire year, which is saying a lot because we've had a lot of policy mistakes. Uh, it's interesting. The original CDC guidance on schools was really balanced. And I think anyone who actually read it and paid attention would not have closed schools. And yet we had sort of this panic contagion that swept the whole country and all the schools were closed. And a lot of them never reopened or opened on very limited part time schedules. And, uh, and it's interesting. There was a study in the Journal of the American Medical Association a couple of weeks ago. They looked at just the impact of elementary school closures and just for two months in the spring, and they calculated five million years of life lost uh, from you know two months of elementary school closures, which is probably more years of life lost than we're going to have from the coronavirus. Uh, there's a very strong relationship between educational attainment not and not just income, but life expectancy as well. The difference between a high school graduate and a high school dropout on average is about five years of life expectancy. Um, the online learning is not working for a lot of people. For some kids, it's fine. Uh, some of them are doing okay, but a lot of kids are failing, a lot more kids than ever failed uh, with traditional school. And uh, that has major long-term consequences, both economic and health consequences. And so we're, we're essentially imposing enormous harms and enormous, enormous costs on children societally, uh, even though children are at a near zero risk, a certainly much lower risk uh, with coronavirus than they are from seasonal flu, which is five to 10 times more deadly for children than coronavirus, uh, and that we tolerate, and that we think is a perfectly acceptable low level of, of risk. And so children have really been the biggest losers in our policy response uh, to, to COVID. It feels increasingly, Phil, like the elimination of, of any tolerable risk when it comes to COVID has been at the center of, of a lot of the policies that we see. And uh, restaurants in New York City have just been closed as of this week. Contact tracing showed that they were responsible for, they believe, about 1% of the spread. So what are what have we learned about where is the virus spreading in New York and its and its environs? Because that's a that's also a good proxy for where it would be spreading in other densely populated parts of the country. Well, the uh, the data that New York published, and it's interesting because they published you know very very similar data back in May and then ignored it, and now they're finding the same thing again, which is uh, almost all of the spread is inside of homes, inside of households, and uh, you know New York, of course has a lot of high density residential, a lot of multifamily, you know, apartment buildings. And, and uh, so, you know, it may be a little bit different there than some other places, but by and large, I think it's now pretty clear from the contact tracing we've seen all over the country that uh, there's not a lot of spread in places like restaurants and retail and so forth. The, the spread tends to happen, uh, sort of the one-to-one person-to-person spread tends to happen uh, inside of homes. Now, we also have this other problem of these occasional sort of super spreader events, which are hard to predict. And we still don't really know why some small percentage of people with this virus, and it's only maybe 10%, something like that, seem to be responsible for, you know, a lot of the spread. And so, you know, you got on ad, the average person who gets this virus infects zero or one other people. 
And then, but then you've got this small group that infects tons of people. And, you know, we still don't really know what makes them different and why they tend to infect lots of people. And you know, I wish more research were going into that because that would be very useful to sort of identify and be able to predict what those characteristics are. Uh, but by and large, uh, what we saw in the New York did, and it was remarkable because Governor Cuomo came out and he said, look, here's the data, 75% of transmission is in homes, 1% is in restaurants, so I'm closing restaurants. And, uh, you know, then he said, well, you know, because it's something we can do, you know, we can't close homes, we can close restaurants. But of course, just because you can do something doesn't mean that it's actually, you know, he said, you know, it's only a small difference, but it's something we can do, you know, but if you look at the data, Buck, it's more likely to be a negative difference than a positive difference. Because if you say, you know, we're going to push gatherings and holiday gatherings and dinners and all this kind of stuff out of restaurants where people are being very strict with their distancing and their hygiene and all this stuff. We're going to push them out. We're going to close. Now they're going to take place in homes instead. You know, some of them won't take place at all, but a lot of them will take place in homes instead uh, without any of those precautions. And so in my judgment, the restaurant closure is not only economically devastating, uh, but it's more likely to increase transmission than to decrease it because people are going to meet in uh, home settings instead. Well, this was a concern also last winter at, or late, late in the winter when we recognized that New York City was facing this this first big wave of covid cases. They, they went into the, the uh, 15 days to stop the spread and the stay at home orders. And a lot of people are saying, well, hold on a second. We've had this virus is all over the place already. And now what you're going to be doing by shutting down the schools, shutting down anywhere for people to places for people to go is you might actually be forcing. And you mentioned multi-generational, multi-family homes, dense housing, uh, which is all over New York City, where people it's very difficult to really stay far away from others. It may have effectively sent everyone home to infect their family members inadvertently. But that that was always a concern. Yeah, I think that uh, that almost certainly was a big part of what happened in New York uh, back in the spring. Now, the good thing you've got going for you now uh, in New York is, you know, so many people have already had it. You have a very high level of community immunity, probably higher than anywhere else in the United States. And so, you know, if you look at the New York state numbers, it's now mostly outside of the New York City area. It's sort of the rest of the state is kind of catching up. Uh, New York City uh, if you look at the hospital utilization and the emergency room data, you, you've actually got lower emergency room visits for respiratory illnesses and influenza-like illness now than in you know any of the previous five years this time of year. So you're actually lower than normal in New York City, uh, I think, because you've got a lot of community immunity to COVID. And because the other factor, which is happening everywhere in the world right now, with very little attention paid to it, uh, there's almost no flu activity this year. And we don't know if that's because the, you know, the policy measures like the masks and the distancing and school closures are somehow more effective for flu than they are for COVID, or if the virus itself has somehow disrupted. We don't really know why it's the case, uh, but it's a remarkable story because remember the experts said we're gonna have this twindemic, flu's gonna hit at the same time as COVID, all the hospitals gonna be overwhelmed. Instead, we've got you know, the mildest flu season since at least 2015. And maybe, you know, we'll see if it doesn't take off at all, maybe uh, the mildest flu season on record. So you've got, you know, really underutilization of hospitals in a place like New York City that has relatively little COVID activity because we're not seeing any flu. I, I pulled some numbers last week. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, Phil. I'm speaking to Phil Kirpin, syndicated columnist, uh, journalist. And uh, Phil, uh, I, I looked at the initial now. Now, I had someone write. I've had people write into me since to say 
we're not really testing for flu the way that we normally do. And to that, I say, OK, because I, I am asking, you know, sometimes people are asking a question and they're really trying to push a conclusion. I'm actually asking the question, but I, I pose to to the audience. I said, you know, the initial data on the CDC website for the first week of December and and I think it was it was low for what they actually had for COVID. So this was initial data. So the numbers are clearly going to go up. And, you know, maybe it went from, you know, maybe might might even go up by a factor of 10, let's say. Right. I mean, it could go up substantially. But the initial data said that they had something like uh, 2000 plus COVID deaths in the first week of December that were officially COVID, you know, meaning that this is the what they had three, three from the flu. Now. I, I could understand more COVID. I could, under, but there's clearly something going on here. I mean, you mentioned some of the, the possibilities. There's no way that you have almost a factor of a thousand more COVID deaths than you do flu deaths, given what we would see in a normal flu season. That's not possible. Well, uh, you know, flu peaks uh, are more often in January and February than they are in November and December. Sometimes you have, you know, earlier flu seasons. Uh, so, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, flu is not here yet. It's still coming. That might be true, but we've never seen levels this low. We've never seen levels this low. And if you look at the CDC flu testing data, it's down about 95%, 90, you know, 95 to almost 100% some weeks. We've had like 98% reduction from the five-year average. Uh, and it's not that we're not testing. The flu tests are actually higher than the five-year average, and they're actually at a record high of the number of flu tests that the CDC tracks. And the CDC only tracks clinical labs and public health labs, so they don't track, you know, like the rapid tests in a doctor's office. That's not in the stats. So they only have thousands of tests. They don't have millions of tests. Uh, but it's still, uh, it indicates that I, I think one of three things is going on, Buck. Either uh, we've got the public health measures that are being implemented for some reason are very effective at stopping flu, even though they don't seem to be. They're not effective at stopping COVID, right? Go ahead. Right. So that's a little hard to believe, although a lot of people have been saying that. Or Somehow the COVID virus itself disrupts the flu virus, which is possible. There's a phenomenon called viral interference. And this was actually how swine flu ended back in 2009. The rhinovirus came in and it sort of just knocked it out. You know, people got that instead and it sort of knocked it out. And there was some hope. There was actually an article, you know, months ago, hoping that flu season would come in and sort of disrupt COVID. That definitely didn't happen, but maybe the opposite happened. Maybe COVID disrupted flu. And, you know, once you get COVID, you're mucus buildup blocks flu or some mechanism causes viral interference or the third possibility is that we've got some sort of a data artifact where maybe you know we're getting so many false positives for covid that people get flu they test false positive it goes into the stats as a covid uh case instead of a flu case uh, maybe uh there's a timing issue where even though we have lots of flu tests people are only taking the flu test after they get a negative COVID test back, and by then flu is not detectable anymore. Some people have suggested that. So there are basically there are three possibilities, uh, in my judgment. Either the policies are actually stopping flu somehow, uh, there's actual viral interference, or we've got some sort of a data artifact based on the sequence and the way that we're doing the testing uh, that's causing the flu cases to be mischaracterized as COVID. So it's got to be one of those three things. I'm not sure which it is or if it's a combination. Uh, but I, I wish there were a lot more curiosity about this, uh, you know, among the media and about, you know, among the public health officials, because it's a pretty remarkable uh, phenomenon. What it, we're seeing talk talk to me about this. And we're speaking to Phil Kirpin. Uh, he is the president of American Commitment and he's a syndicated columnist. Phil, the I, I see all these charts and I've, I've looked at some of the data myself and they show 
mask mandates going into place on a timeline and, the, you know, for, for a state, right, whether it's California or Hawaii or New York or wherever, mask mandate goes into effect. And then you have countless charts where you just give it time and the cases just skyrocket after the mandate goes into effect. What can we just tell from the numbers about this as a policy? Can, can we draw any conclusions or you or, or can you draw any conclusions from what we're seeing? Uh, I don't think masks have any effect on uh, mask mandates. Uh, and, you know, we should we should differentiate the two mask mandates and masks are not necessarily synonymous because just because a mandate's in an area doesn't mean everyone's wearing them or wearing them properly or handling them properly and so forth. You know, the reason historically uh, we've never recommended masks outside of medical settings is it's actually really hard to use a mask properly to make sure you never touch the outside to remove it and carefully and throw it out or wash it without ever touching the outside. And you know, that's why we've never recommended them in non-medical settings, because even if they work sort of conceptually in sort of a lab test, we never had confidence that people would use them correctly in a way that actually could be beneficial. And I think that based on the data that I'm seeing, you know, it's sort of you could go either way on whether they work in an idealized setting. There is a lot of lab data showing that they probably would be beneficial if they were used sort of perfectly. Uh, but in practice, I don't see any evidence that they've been beneficial at all. And, you know, the, there's, there's cherry picking that goes on. And the CDC had a couple of very low quality studies looking at Arizona and Kansas, where they essentially just cherry picked their end dates uh, and their comparators and they said, look, masks are the reason we saw a decline. And, if, you know, if you look at kind of what's happened seasonally, you have you have essentially identical patterns in places with and without mask mandates if they've got the same geography and the same uh, sort of time of year. And so I don't think that they make a difference one way or the other. You could argue some have suggested they may actually be harmful. The reason that the Nordic states have all avoided the mask mandates, uh, you know, Sweden, Denmark, Norway and so forth, is they say, look, you know, the mask doesn't really do that much, especially the way a typical person handles it is not well trained the way a surgeon would be and so forth. But if you tell people that the mask protects you, uh, then suddenly they're going to stand right next to each other for prolonged periods of time with masks on and they're going to think they don't need to keep their distance. And oh, and I'm sure people that have mild coat, they might go out of the house even if they're feeling sick because they right. have mask on. And so the, you know, a false belief that a mask will protect you might actually put you at more risk. This is what I've been saying. You're going to have people that say, well, maybe I got COVID, but my symptoms aren't that bad. And I'm wearing a mask, so I'm good to go. It's like, no, this is a bad idea. This is a bad idea. But I, I, I'm, I could guarantee that's been happening all over the country, all over the world. Phil, look, I appreciate that you're willing to take a, take a look at the data here and the numbers and come to conclusions that, you know, aren't right in line with the consensus. I feel like this is. The brainwashing that has gone on on this issue is unlike anything else I've ever seen in my life. I just want to give you the last word. Yeah, I mean, probably the most frightening thing of the past year, Buck, has been the extent to which uh, people not only accepted all of these various arbitrary government decrees, but demanded them and welcomed them and cheered them on. And uh, I think the extent to which a large portion of the public uh, supports the heavy handed you know, government policy response is probably the most frightening uh, takeaway of this whole thing. And, uh, you know, it means we could we could see this again every time there's a disease. So I, I am I am concerned about that. And I share your, uh, uh, you know, I share your sentiments on that. Phil Kirpin, president of American Commitment. Phil, really appreciate it. Talk to you soon. All right. Have a good one. Liberty. 
truth and great hair. You're listening to the best of the Buck Sexton Show. I think the party is uncertain of the course that we're going to take going forward. Uh, the principles that have long been uh, the hallmark of, of my party are very much in question, which is, do we believe in balancing the budget? Uh, do we believe in standing up to people like Kim Jong-un and, uh, and Vladimir Putin? Are we committed to the principle that character counts? These are all things that I think we're going to have to decide over the coming years. I can tell you this much. Mitt Romney's not going to be the leader of the Republican Party. That's for damn sure. Mitt Romney is a Democrat now. Not going to forget that one anytime soon. He should be ashamed of his vote for the president to be removed during that sham impeachment An impeachment about a president having a phone call where he asked about what we know is an entirely legitimate issue. Biden family corruption, which is quite real. There's a federal investigation going on around it. You know, I, they, they may not like that the, the Trumpster was using some bare knuckle politics here, but he was within his rights to do it. It was a fair ask. No action was taken on it anyway. And Mitt Romney voted to have the president removed from office based on that. Now, let, let's not ever forget this. There are a lot of these never Trumpers. There are a lot of these stealth Democrats running around who are now all of a sudden going to be talking about how much they care about protecting Life and the pro-life movement. They're going to be talking about the Constitution and limited government and a strong national defense and all these things. They think that we're going to turn the clock back to, you know, 2006 or something. And the Romneyite McCain, you know, McCainian view of the Republican Party is going to be what we go back to. And, and I think that they're in for a rude awakening. It's not going to happen and it should not happen. Buck took the day off, but don't worry, we've still got you covered. This is the best of the Buck Sexton Show. All right, now for some good news, although in a way it's also troubling that it came to this. I told you that General Flynn was pardoned by the president. You no doubt have seen or heard that in a lot of places. It was pretty big news when it happened. And in response to that, you had Judge Emmett Sullivan produce a 34 page uh, opinion from the from the federal bench that shows you what final stage Trump derangement syndrome looks like. General Flynn is an innocent man. They ruined this guy and they used the law to settle political scores against him. They ruined this guy or tried to based on lies, deception, the destruction of his constitutional rights. It was all politicized. It was a partisan hit. That's what they did to General Flynn. We all know it. This is very clear. But it took a pardon from the president of the United States to get a federal judge to stop going after him. And then he wrote a 34 page, uh, 34 page opinion from the bench where he talked about how Flynn is guilty and the administration shouldn't have done this. And this is, you know, yes, they have the power, but this is a miscarriage of justice like a lunatic. He continued a prosecution by judge after the Department of Justice, which is the prosecutorial arm of the federal government, dropped the case and told him we never should have brought this case. But he thinks he's respecting the system by trashing it because he doesn't like a decision that they made. It was their decision. What is this guy doing? Yes, General Flynn is no longer in criminal jeopardy. 
and he has been officially pardoned. But we also need to know that Judge Emmett Sullivan is a Trump deranged lunatic, and he should be, and I mean this, removed from the federal bench and disbarred forthwith, right away. That's what should happen. This guy is scary. Do you think, if, if you're a person known in public life as a conservative, as a Trump supporter, do you think that you could get a fair trial in Judge Emmett Sullivan's courtroom? This guy's a federal circuit judge in D.C. It's a pretty big deal. You think you get a fair trial? Absolutely not. This guy's a disgrace, a disgrace to the judiciary. But he shows you what we're up against. This, this was unheard of. When the, when the DOJ says the judge doesn't get to pick somebody, does a judge get to say, you know what, I don't like this guy. I'm going to bring him into my courtroom and prosecute him. It's basically what they did to Judge Sullivan. I mean, to, uh, to General Flynn. Completely insane. But I'm very... Uh, so, so it's good that General Flynn is no longer in criminal jeopardy, but they dragged him through four years of this madness. Four years. Years of this insanity. For what? For what? To make an example of him. And unfortunately, that still stands. Do do you think that now people might have second thoughts, especially to support Trump if he's leaving that Oval Office in January, which, you know, I'll leave it to you. I'll leave the percentages to you, but. Certainly is a possibility. Uh, I think we could say it's a probability. I've been saying that for weeks. If that happens, do you think that people are going to be a little bit concerned about what could happen to them if they go forward and support Donald J. Trump? You think that may be something to consider here? Because I do. Because I do. I think there are going to be a lot of people who say, uh, what are my risks here? What's going to happen? Here is the attorney general for New York State, Leticia James, who is straight up threatening, like a mob boss, threatening prosecution of Donald Trump by her state when he leaves office. Play, uh, play seven. It's important to understand he is pardoned from federal crimes, but he is not pardoned from state crimes. Last year, I introduced a bill in the state legislature which would close the pardon loophole so that individuals such as the president of the United States would not evade justice. It's important that we have this check on presidential powers and in the legislature, the state legislature, I'm so happy they passed that bill and it is now the law in the state of New York. Um, President Trump cannot avoid justice in the great state of new york people have asked me should the president pardon himself i think the answer is yes what's what happens if he pardons if he writes a a preemptive pardon for himself and and his family members think about this what what what's the downside oh everyone's gonna scream oh look what he did he's a criminal they're saying that anyway there's no fair-minded person who looks at trump and look looks at what's going on right now and says yeah he'll he'll be left alone in private life They'll, they'll back off. Don't let him go, you know, go lead a, a quiet family life with uh, his kids and grandkids. And nope. No, we chanted lock her up and then Hillary evaded justice, even though she did break the law. They will go after Trump and they'll fabricate crimes. That's how they play the game. We we play, you know, two hand touch. We're playing flag football here 
in politics. They are putting on brass knuckles and hitting us in the back of the head when the ref is not looking. That's how they play the game. Unfortunately, I think we're going to get another another lesson in that here very soon. They're going to they're going to go after people with prosecutions. They're going to go after people with the IRS. Oh, but they talk of unity. Remember that in in their little self-congratulatory delusion. We just want the American people to unify. But remember, New York state charges, it is true. You, you can only pardon yourself from federal charges. You cannot, you cannot clear yourself, even as president, from state charges. And nor can he clear his family members from that. And they've been talking about this for a long time. Now, you might say, Buck, but can they really get him? I don't know. Can they fabricate a crime? They fabricated Russia collusion. But even if they can't convict Trump or any of his family members, they can certainly investigate them, hound them, go after them, harass them. I think Ivanka Trump just, what was it, a week ago, had, was, was deposed having to do with inauguration spending? What? Yeah. Do you think there'll be any, let me ask you this, do you think there'll actually be any federal criminal charges about the inauguration spending? No. Not, not against Ivanka, not against any of the Trumps. Not going to happen. But why? Well, they, they've got somebody in the DOJ who you know, wants to harass them. It's like it's auditioning for a, a bigger, better role in a Biden administration. This is what they do. It's, it's appalling. Look, Trump is, and I, I want to be very clear, Trump is not giving up the fight. He's, he's staying in this till the absolute very end. I mean, I think he's going to fight this until the day that the moving trucks arrive. And God bless him. Why not? Why, why pretend that everything is fine here? And why pretend that the Biden administration in any way that these Democrats have acted in good faith? They put forward this quasi senile clown. And we're all supposed to say, yeah, you guys have the best interests of the nation at heart. Sure. I don't think so. Not going to not going to happen with me. I mean, I can't speak for anybody else. Here's the president, though, just. Just letting everybody know and doing a little bit of trolling. Play 11. The next administration will be the one ultimately that implements a lot of the distribution of this vaccine and will oversee much of the future of the way Operation Warp Speed goes forward. Why not include members of the Biden transition team as part of this summit that you're hosting today? Well, we're going to have to see who the next administration is because uh, we won in those swing states and uh, there was uh, terrible things that went on. So we're going to have to see who the next administration is. But whichever the next administration is will really benefit by what we've been able to do with this incredible science, uh, the doctors, all of the people that came up, the lab technicians, the work, the work that's been done is incredible. And it will be incredible for the next administration. And hopefully the next administration will be the Trump administration. We'll see. But I like that. He still goads them and he's showing them he's not backing down one bit. They think they can tame Trump as he's in these weeks of December before what could be a presidential transition. And they're wrong. He's not going to back down. He's not going to give up. And what you see now is more and more reason to continue on with that fight, even even if we don't win. We stay unified and we show the other side that. We got we got some backbone. We can dig in. We're willing to take this all the way to take this to the mat. 
bucks off spreading freedom coast to coast. This is the best of the Buck Sexton Show. You know, what the president isn't doing uh, is telling anybody, telling Americans what they should do in the meantime while we're waiting for this vaccine to be distributed to the general population. He is not communicating the message about what they should do to curb the spread of this. That's what Biden is talking about. Biden is talking about. You know, obviously darker terms, uh, obviously not putting nearly as much emphasis on the vaccine, but talking about the near term, the next few hundred days in which basically Americans still have to do a lot to protect themselves until we can get that inoculation. That's right. This is what you're going to be told every day from now until the end of January. We haven't been told enough. Do, do you feel like that? We haven't been told enough about Social distancing, wear a mask, wash your hands. I mean, here, here's the, a question that I asked yesterday on on Twitter, you know, before they they ban me. But he, here's a question that they ask on Twitter and, and that I asked on Twitter, rather. And I, I got to tell you, um, as I look at it, it's amazing to me how unself-aware so many people are. I, I said um, about this covid stuff that we're being told all the time um, i asked the very real question does anyone have an explanation of how it's possible mass compliance is the most widespread it has been all year in this country but we now have more covid cases than we did in march of 2020 and april after months of viral spread with no mask mandates and almost no public masking at all and i said please Answer me before Twitter bans this question, because as we know, social media companies are run by idiot libs and they can't think for themselves. OK, so what is the answer to this? What's amazing to me, and this tells you so much, is how many people respond to this with because it's blah, 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 you idiot. And there's a hundred different people with a hundred different reasons why I'm an idiot for not knowing what their approved consensus, left-wing, Fauci seal of approval answer is. It's because people aren't masking up enough. Really? So, so they didn't really think about the question very much, did they? We went from basically no masking in March and April, very, very little, very intermittent here and there, and certainly no mandates. We went from that to 80%, 90% mask compliance. And somehow cases and now cases are higher. Some of them were saying because cases are not hospitalizations and deaths, you idiot. Really? Hospitalizations and deaths are also higher. But you just go you go down this list because Europe figured it out and we didn't really. Germany just said it's all time one day death record from covid. Germany is a sixth the size of the United States. They had almost what was it? Five hundred 500 plus dead in one day. So it's, you know, two or 3,000 dead in one day in Germany if you made it a comparable to the U.S. population. Oh, and I thought the Germans figured out the whole thing. I thought the Germans had the answer. It was those dumb Trump supporters. It is so dangerous and so wrong for people to think it's okay to blame disfavored political groups in the United States. And group in this case half the country that supported donald trump they're the reason for this virus this is idiocy there's no basis for this and they can't answer these questions when you bring them up and my favorite of course as i've said is it's so obvious 
you idiot. And then they they tell me something and I say, well, your other liberal blue check friend over here who believes in the science has a different answer. So which one of you is correct? And if it's a hundred different things, maybe it's not obvious, is it? All you have to do is ask the questions. You don't even have to take stands right now. Just just ask the questions you're not supposed to. And when you get unsatisfactory answers and you're told, shut up, peasant, do what you're told, you know exactly what you're up against. Anyone can observe that what the media, the left, the libs have been saying was going to save us. We can control this. We can flatten the curve. Clearly, that is not true. Clearly. It is called an observation of reality all around us. I know people here in New York who are getting COVID. I have friends in L.A. who have just gotten COVID. I know people all across the country are seeing cases and and hospitalizations spiking even more than they did the last uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. So this is now the, the so-called second wave that we're seeing, right? This is the second wave. But if we have gotten so much better with our PPE, we've got, and remember, we have better treatments for this now. So somehow the virus has spread more and it's spread more efficiently. OK, maybe there's a mutation that's led to the increased spread. We don't know. That's a real answer. I, I could handle that as an answer. But wear a mask like what Cuomo says all the time. That's not a real answer. I, uh, that's not me saying that it doesn't work at all. I'm just saying the reason that we have this huge spike in cases is not lack of mask compliance. That is madness. People are masking up all over the place. I know people who are very mask conscientious. They're sick or they've gotten sick. So what are they? Is it their fault? Oh, no, it's only a Republican's fault. When a Republican gets COVID, it's his fault. So when Rudy Giuliani gets COVID-19, the media says, see, he's reckless. But when Jared Polis, the governor of Colorado, a big mask maniac, when he gets it and his wife gets it, it's, oh, gosh, it's a virus. I guess it can really spread. Gosh, this is real contagious. This is this is tearing us apart. We should be unified against this. We should be united as a country. This is in, this is an external enemy that is mixing in our in all over our society. This virus, and instead, people have used this as a wedge. They've used this for further division, and they refuse to deal with what we can all see and observe. They are lying to you. And just asking them to explain themselves results in them saying that you are the liar. 